you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to turn with me to Mark chapter 9, as we're continuing on in our study through the Gospel of Mark. And I'm so, uh, I echo Pastor Mike's prayer just now, as he talked about in his prayer, that God would turn us away from our idols. And we all have different idols, and typically I have found that the, the biggest idol in many of our lives is ourselves. And this morning, our passage of Scripture is going to confront us with our own self-idolatry. You know, when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies was Remember the Titans. And maybe if you were in your, around in the early 2000s, you, know, you got burnt out on the Remember the Titans because it seemed like it was everywhere. But it's one of the most epic stories of all time. One, it works in, in uh, sports into the midst of it, but it also talks about this constant human struggle that we have to lay aside our own prejudices and our own uh, self-importance and our own pride for the sake of unity and something bigger. If you're unfamiliar with the story, remember the Titans. It's, it's a story of a high school football team in 1971, Virginia, struggling through the process of racial integrations of schools. And you watch this entire struggle take place between the black students at the high school and the white students at the high school. As for the very first time, they're having to live life with one another and play on the same team. And the prejudices and the, the pride and the, the assumptions and presumptions of the society threaten this, this, this little community that is trying to form. Both, and it's, it's being threatened from inside and outside. And you watch as this, these bonds are, are built as some strive, the coach and, and other certain players strive really hard to, to lead the team into to unity. You see others that undergo a radical transformation that takes place in their hearts and then that leads to transformation in the team and then the team brings an entire society together. But the first thing that they had to do was lay aside their prejudices driven by their pride and their presumptions and their self-importance. And in the same way I see in our lives that we oftentimes let our pride and presumptions of how things are supposed to be get in the way of our unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It gets in the way of our spiritual development and our discipleship. Scripture is constantly confronting us with our pride because our pride prevents us from seeing and following the true path of discipleship that Jesus calls us to. He's calling us to something better than pride and self-promotion. He's calling us instead, as we've seen already in Mark, to self-denial. As we see today, he calls us to humility. Because that's the path that he walked. That's the path that he calls us to walk. And the warning that we get out of the verses that we're going to read in just a minute, the warning to, our, to us from this passage of Scripture, is that we must lay aside our pride. We must embrace humility because proud people are unprepared for the path of Jesus Christ. Proud people cannot walk the path that Jesus calls us to. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 30 and read down through the end of the chapter this morning. We pick up the disciples after their encounter at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration and they're traveling through. So Jesus and his disciples went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him up in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come now to your word and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to be moved into obedience to your passage of Scripture. That this wouldn't be something that we just come to understand, but it would be something that transforms the way that we live our lives. That, Father God, we would turn from our prideful ways, our arrogance, and instead we would turn to you in humility, to trust in you, to lean on you, to run to you, and to follow the path of suffering that Jesus Christ walked before us. That we would turn away from our self-preservation and our self-promotion. Instead, we would deny ourselves and that we would serve others. That we would seek, Father God, to be the least. That we might bring glory to the greatest of us all, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Where we are right now, and we are in really what is kind of the heart of Mark's gospel. If you'll remember, the first seven and a half chapters that we've studied in the gospel of Mark were dominated by one question. Who is this man? There's this mystery of of Jesus Christ and what he's able to do and what he does do. And the answer to that question, who is this man, is answered in Mark chapter 8, where Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ. And his revelation is the turning point of the entire story. And the new question that dominates the last seven and a half chapters of the Gospel of Mark is, since Jesus is the Christ, what is the Christ here to do? Three times in chapters 8 through 10, Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples about his mission. And in doing so, he confronts their misunderstandings and then trains them in the marks of what is true discipleship. 
And our verses this morning recount that second instance of the pattern when Jesus identifies his mission as the Messiah and the disciples' misunderstanding of the character and the work of the Messiah. And so first what Jesus does in these verses and what Mark does is by quoting Jesus Christ, he lays out for us and for the disciples the path that Jesus is going to walk. We see in the opening verses the path of Jesus Christ. As we've seen earlier, the Jews had a preconception of who the Messiah was meant to be for them and also for the world. They expected some military hero who was going to liberate their people and establish some unconquerable kingdom and was going to bring everlasting glory to the house of Israel. And in a certain sense, this is true. Because that is the promises of the, of the Old Testament prophets. That in the day of the Lord and at the coming of the Lord's anointed one, the branch of Israel, what would happen is that all of the enemies of Israel would be defeated, the king would sit on his throne, it would be an unconquerable throne, and that peace would be restored, and that the land would be fruitful, and they would live in this grand, blessed utopia where they would be with God. That's the promises. And that's what they clung to. But what they didn't understand, what they missed, was that that glory and all of that good and all of those promises were dependent first on the Messiah's severe suffering on behalf of the people of God. And so Jesus is is taking the twelve here who are Share, who share that same misunderstanding of the Jewish people of who the Messiah is meant to be and what the Messiah is supposed to do. And as I've said before, he's emptying out all of their presumptions and preconceptions of who the Messiah is supposed to be, wiping it out, and then refilling it with the truth. He wants them to see that the Messiah is more than just some conquering king. They, he wants them to see that he is also the suffering servant. That is declared in the prophets as well. He's declaring, he's preparing, I'm sorry, his disciples for the path that he has to walk. A path of suffering. A path of death. He's preparing them for this path because that's the path that he is calling them to as well. And back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus first began teaching plainly about his mission. And there, he told the disciples that he was going to suffer many things, be rejected by the leaders of the people, be killed, and that he would rise again after three days. Jesus uses almost the identical language. It's the same pattern that he is going to be rejected, he's going to be arrested and killed, and then he's going to rise again. But there are some, a couple, at least, notable exceptions to Jesus' words in this reiteration of his passion prediction that need to be looked at. First, Jesus says that the Son of Man will be delivered. And that might not seem like much at first glance, but it's pretty significant when we stop and we think about it. It's one thing for Jesus to be rejected, as he indicated was going to happen just a chapter or two before this. Maybe even just a matter of weeks before this. But it's another thing when he says here that he is going to be handed over. The word that Mark uses here is a word that he's used a few times before, and he's going to start using with increasing frequency in the second half of the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, it was translated the word arrested when he talks about what happened to John the Baptist, that he was arrested. The second time that he uses it is when he introduces us to the the 12 apostles 
And one of them is Judas, who, said, who he says is the one who would betray Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see this word show up multiple times in those different ways. The arresting of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus. Here, that Jesus is going to be delivered or handed over. Jesus is revealing here that his sacrifice is not going to be some accident or a mere consequence of a series of events. But instead, his death is going to be the deliberate, deliberate act of someone. And that someone is not Jesus. Jesus is going to be delivered. It's something that's going to happen to him. And so a question that probably popped into the disciples' mind and should pop into our mind is, okay, if Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over, who's the one that's going to be doing the handing over? And that puzzles them. Who's going to hand him over? And in the immediate context of Mark's gospel, we know that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. But in the fullness of time, Peter would come to understand and later declare boldly in the streets of Jerusalem that Jesus was delivered up, a different Greek word, but he was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. What we're learning here is that Jesus was delivered by the Father through the hands of Judas into the hands of men. And that's the second distinct difference between Jesus' passion prediction here and the one that we read in Acts, or I mean Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Because here, he is handed over to men. And the first time that Jesus talks about this, he says that he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. And the disciples are okay with that because they've been with Jesus at this point three years. They're used to the religious people not liking Jesus. They're used to the religious leaders opposed to him and to, to them. If you, hear, if you were here last week or you listened to last week's sermon, we just came out of the instance where the scribes of the Pharisees were confronting the disciples for their failure. For three years, they've been fighting the religious leaders. It's easy for them to understand or think and categorize the religious leaders as being their enemies, the ones who want to see their downfall. But here Jesus shocks them because it's not the religious leaders that he's talking about. Jesus says here that he's going to be handed over to men and be killed, messing up what little understanding the disciples might have had at this point. Because it's no longer some easily identifiable external enemy that's going to kill Jesus. Instead, it's going to be men, men just like them, men just like you and me. And it's in this that we meet the beautiful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the one who's proven his power over disease, proven his power over demons, proven his power over death itself, is going to humble himself to die by men, for men. It wasn't just those men, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It wasn't just the Romans or the Jews that killed Jesus. It was the disciples. It was mankind. It was you, and it was me. If we were there, we would have done the exact same thing. We would have run. We would have betrayed. We would have cried, crucify him with everyone else. 
We can't use what we know in the fullness of time to look back and condescend to the disciples and everyone else. It was you and it was me. Your sin and my sin is what required Jesus' death on the cross. And that's the bad news of reality. But the good news is that though Jesus was the perfect image of humanity and didn't deserve to die, he let us treat him as we deserve to be treated so that we might be treated as we don't deserve to be treated, which is with grace and with mercy. And though he died, as he prophesies and he promises right here, three days later, the Lord vindicated his son Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead that we might be reconciled to God. Such that all the promises of Scripture are fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that we might be forgiven and set free from our sins and set into a life of path, a path of life and discipleship and relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the path available to every single person in this room. That's the path that comes through obedience to Jesus Christ and trusting Him as your Lord and your Savior today by turning from your sins and choosing to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart and all your life and all your soul and all your strength. That's the path that Jesus sets before His disciples. It's the path that's before you and for before me. But oftentimes we are too blind and too dumb to follow it. The disciples can't understand and they're afraid to ask Jesus Christ because something is standing in their way. And what we find out in the next verses is one of the things that's standing in their way, one of the obstacles to their life of true discipleship is their pride. They can't walk the path of Jesus because they're walking instead the path of their pride. In the next verses as they come into the city of Capernaum, Jesus confronts them with the conversation that they were having on the way. And in the midst of it, it's revealed that the confrontation that they had was over the question of which one of them was the best. Who's the best of the twelve? Who's the greatest? As Mark is walking through these these three repetitions of Jesus' plain teaching on what the mission of the Messiah is meant to be, he follows it up immediately every single time with a misunderstanding of the disciples. And Jesus has to break down, deconstruct all the barriers that exist in their lives to their successfully walking this path. Last time, it was when Peter rose up and rebuked Jesus for teaching that the Messiah would suffer and die. Jesus' response was to rebuke rebuke Peter for his presumption and his misunderstanding. And then he deconstructed Peter and the disciples' sense of self-preservation by calling them into sacrifice. And he declared to them, if you want to save your life, the only way to save it is to lay it down, to lose it, to give it up, to deny your sense of self-worth and find it in someone else. And he called them to self-sacrifice and self-denial. And here Jesus is deconstructing another barrier, which is their sense of self-promotion and pride. We don't know what prompted their discussion that led to their argument. Mark doesn't tell us. Perhaps it was just men being men. And we always get into, you know, a spitting contest with one another about who's the best in the room. I remember growing up, there was a point where I was hanging out with a bunch of my friends and some guys were being stupid and they were in these challenges, these one-up things, and they asked the question, who could stick their hand down in an eye, a bucket of ice water for the longest? And the two of them went, and it went about four minutes or something. 
And then one of the girls was dumb enough to pipe up and say, well, I guess so-and-so is the manliest man in the room. He just threw down the gauntlet at that point. And so the rest of us put our hands in the bucket of ice. Eighteen minutes later, guess who was the winner? Nearly 20 years later, guess whose hand sometimes tingles when it gets cold? Maybe it was just men being men and being stupid and being dumb. Maybe the three who had the privilege of going up on top of the mountain were now boasting over the nine who failed to cast out the demon, and they think that they have a special place in Jesus' heart. Or maybe as Jesus is talking more frequently about his death, they're legitimately concerned about who's going to be the leader when he's gone. But regardless, it leads to fighting. And they're ashamed of it as Jesus confronts them over it. And Jesus does this in a loving way as he confronts them with their discussion, knowing exactly what it was about. Because he wants to draw out of them this teaching opportunity where he can reveal to them the life and the path that they're walking, a path of pride. And in the next few verses, we see the consequences of that path of pride come out in several of the things that Jesus talks about in the discussion between him and his disciples. The first thing we see about pride is that pride often leads us, as we're seeing right here, into conflict and into disunity. We see this happen all the time when there is somebody who builds a really a wealthy empire in industry. And as soon as, as the dad or the father or the mother or whoever it is, the titan of industry who built this, this, this successful company from the ground up dies, what ends up happening? It isn't but a couple of years that typically those empires are dissolved and broken up and sold and everything else because of the squabbling of the children. And the heirs can't get themselves together enough and united enough to preserve what their father built. And that's what threatens the unity of the infant church with the leaders squabbling over themselves instead of uniting around the very thing that should have brought them together. Jesus is here talking about the fact that he is going to die. And instead of drawing nearer to Jesus and growing nearer to him and rallying around him as he faces his death, they're squabbling about what they're going to get out of it when he's gone. When we live lives of pride and self-promotion, we're going to be driven by the question of what's in it for me. And when and where someone gets what we think we deserve, we're going to fight. We're going to fight for what we think we deserve and what we want. And so it's going to lead to struggle, and it's going to lead to conflict, and it's going to lead to disunity, and we see that even in the church. The second thing that Jesus exposed, that Mark exposes as a consequence for pride is that pride oftentimes leads us to devalue the very things that God values. A life that's characterized by self-promotion and pride is going to reveal itself in our relationships and not just merely through our friendships. Jesus here takes a child and puts it in front of them because they're squabbling over who is the greatest. And Jesus uses this child as an example because a child was not someone in this society that was valued and, and cared for and everybody was sympathetic over. Children were the least in society. One commentator, Ross McLaren, said it this way, a child is an example of a person with absolutely no status and no rights. A child was an obligation that parents had until that child grew to the point where they could be, become a productive member of society. 
And in a society and in a world that struggled with high infertility and high infant death loss and child death loss, they didn't let themselves get super attached to their children. And so children are devalued and undervalued in this society. When we live with pride and self-promotion, we're going to ignore those that we deem as unworthy or invaluable, unvaluable, because they don't add value to our lives, and instead we're going to run after the people that we think will do us some good. So we'll run after the powerful. We'll run in the circles of the celebrity. Instead of seeing the ones that God sees, those that are weak and those that are struggling, This happens in the church. I remember testimony of one pastor who told some college students who were striving to get a college ministry started in their church that this wasn't a priority for their church because college ministry wasn't a bread and butter ministry. In other words, since the college students rarely contributed financially to the church, he couldn't see the value in adding a ministry to them to the church's roster. That's what happens when we live lives of self-promotion, we live this value-added spirit of self-promotion. We don't merely overlook the unvaluable, we overlook the vulnerable and the needy and the weak and we cast them aside and we end up in a place where we deem someone unnecessary for survival and we euthanize them or abort them and cut them out of existence. It's what happens in the church, it's what happens in our society. But pride also leads us to intolerance and partiality. When, John, when Jesus lays, sets this, this child in front of them and calls them to be the least, John responds and he says, Teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't with us. They'd silenced this man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't part of their group. There are a lot of people who see the presence of denominations and denominationalism as something that is evil and wicked in society, and evil and wicked in the church. You know what I see as evil and wicked in the church? Not the existence of denominations, but the fact that the denominations can't get along despite our differences. That's the problem. Instead of allowing one another to enter into dialogue and conversation so that we all go back to God's Word and ask the question, I don't, not what your creed or your statement of faith or your whatever says, but what does the Bible say, and let's unite around that, and let's come around the things that draw us together, we let things drive us apart, and we end up in these little bitty camps where we're suspicious of everybody else, and we try to shut them up and shut them down. Because heaven forbid someone who's not us be successful in ministry in our city. J.D. Greer has a book, Gaining by Losing, and he opens that book with a, a, a point, a testimony in his life of when he really became, began praying for the church that he pastors. And he was praying, God, I beg you, I pray that you would do something phenomenal here in Raleigh, North Carolina. That you would do an amazing work and he said, in my prayer time, I felt like God responded to me and said, okay, but let me ask you a question. Let's say I'm willing to do something, and I will do something phenomenal in Raleigh. Are you going to be okay if I do it with the church down the street? 
And he had to pause on that. And I have to pause on that. Because I I would love to see Spring Creek Baptist Church be a beacon of light into this city that that serves God and that serves our community and that is an outpost for the kingdom that is growing and that is doing incredible things. But are we going to be okay if God does something amazing such that thousands are being saved week in and week out, but it happens at the street on the other side of town or the church on the other side of town? Or are we going to wrestle and fight for us and for ours? Jesus reorients his disciples and us to something different. It's not about this person being with us, but Jesus has an entirely different standard of who's in and who's out. It is someone with Jesus. Not is he with us. Our denomination, our church, our particular theological conviction on something, is that person with Jesus? If so, then they're our brother in Christ and our sister in Christ, and we can champion them. We can serve alongside of them. Fourth thing that pride leads us to is into spiritual blindness. John and the other disciples are very quick to point out what they see as something wrong in the other person, this one who is casting out demons. But Jesus immediately turns on them. Instead of giving them the pat on the back for their zeal that they're expecting, he instead tells them that they are guilty of a serious offense. I believe that the the verse 42 actually goes with verse 41, where Jesus calls them into service and says no act of service, no matter how small, is going to go unrecognized. Instead, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to sin, it would be better for that person if a great millstone were hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. Verse 42 is the same, is equivalent to Jesus' rebuke of Peter. It's Jesus' rebuke of John. John has taken someone who is actively working on behalf of the Lord and doing good in the society and says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you can't do that because you don't have the right credentials. And he snuffed out what potentially could be a phenomenal ministry because of his pride and his arrogance. And Jesus says, don't you understand? It's better for you to be cast into the sea with a giant millstone around your neck than to shut that one down. But beyond that, you're quick to see what that person's faults are, and you cannot see the pride and the arrogance in your own heart that leads you to do so. And so Jesus here holds up the ministry of Scripture and says, instead of focusing on them and their faults and their failures, why not first focus on the log that's in your own eye and take your sins seriously? But instead, they're blind, and you and I are often blind to the sin in our own hearts and our own lives, because sin has that effect, and it compounds on each other. I'll tell you what, there is never a time that I am more critical of other human beings than when I have unrepentant, unconfessed sin in my heart. When I'm hiding my sin and guilty of sin in my life, the first thing that I do is enter into dialogues with what's wrong with everybody else. I start questioning that teacher and that denomination and that church and and this person in their lives. I begin pointing the fingers at everybody else because I want to deflect blame off of me. I want to deflect the light of God's glory and His grace off of my heart, which is the most corrupt of all. And Jesus calls us to something better. Calls us to something greater. He calls us out of the path of pride and into a path of humility. Where he says, listen, if you want to be first, 
you got to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. In the kingdom of God, the way up is to go down. And that's exactly what Jesus attempted to teach the disciples earlier. Just looked at from a bit of a different perspective now. Because if we followed the call of Jesus to deny ourselves, then how are we going to find worth in ourselves? And so in denying ourselves, we deny and we turn away from this path of self-promotion and pride. To deny ourselves is to enter the path of humility. And when we're no longer living for our grandeur and for our good, we'll live with an entirely new orientation, an orientation towards Christ and towards others. So very briefly in this passage of Scripture, as Jesus is confronting them in their pride, we see instead what he calls them to. And humility leads us to see and receive others. Jesus takes this child that the disciples would have ignored, that society would have ignored, And Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, this isn't the place where he says you have to become like a child. He says you have to embrace a child. And he uses this very visual image where he does what really would have been rare as he takes this little boy and he wraps him in his arms. This dirty child that rolls on the floor, that pukes, that adds no value financially or or anything else to the family. Jesus says you have to receive them, embrace them, welcome them in the exact same way, disciples, that you expect to be received as a prophet and an apostle. It's the same word that Jesus used a few chapters ago, I believe in Mark chapter 6, when he sent the 12 out and said, if any town does not receive you, shake the dust off of your feet and let God judge them. And in the same way that they are called to expect a reception because they belong to Jesus, Jesus now calls them to receive not the greatest, not the most prominent, not the most valuable, but instead the least, the most vulnerable the most unwanted. We're called to see them and to receive them. Not because of anything that they have to offer us in return, but because we find the value in them as image bearers of God. Humility doesn't just lead us to see and receive others. Humility also leads us to then serve those others. As Jesus calls them to service, As you receive me, not only when we receive these children in these ways, do we receive Christ and receive the God who sent Jesus Christ, but now we are called to be like this one who is serving others. Can you imagine a greater way to serve someone than by casting a demon out of them? And that is what the disciples had the audacity to stop. But beyond that, Jesus says, even that, as great as that is, He says, even if someone serves you by giving you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me, they will receive a reward. God says even the smallest acts of kindness and service when done is for Christ are recognized and rewarded by God. And so we are called into a life of sacrificial service where we turn away from ourselves, where we have a radically new understanding of our relationship with our money, with our homes, with our stuff, so that we can give it all away for the glory of God and for the good of those that are around us. 
to serve with everything that we've got, knowing that we may not get any value back from serving that little bitty child, but knowing that God sees it, and in the end, He will make sure that all of the accounts are balanced, and trusting in Him, humble enough to believe His promises are true. Beyond that, God calls us to take our sins seriously. And when we are humble enough to look inside of ourselves and see our problems instead of the problems of everybody else, we will see how heinous our sin is and the threats that our sin is to our lives and our destinies and our future. As Jesus calls us to take sin seriously and take radical steps in our lives to eradicate it from us. Now to be clear, Scripture makes it very clear as Scripture condemns self-mutilation multiple times throughout Scripture. So Jesus here can't be contradicting Scripture when he tells us, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your foot causes you to to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not calling us to self-mutilation. Instead, he's using a literary device that's called hyperbole, where he's going and he's talking in exaggerated ways to make a very clear point. Because let's face it, if my eye causes me to sin, if I have a struggle with lust in my heart and a pornography addiction, if my eyes are plucked out of my head, does that solve my problem? No, because all of those images are still up here. If I have a a desire to steal things and I don't have hands, does that change my problem? No, because the problem is not with my hands, it's not with my eyes, it's not with my feet, it's my heart. But Jesus is instead saying you should take sin so seriously, you'll do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. Imagine you had an enemy, someone in your life who said to you, the next time I see you, I will kill you. And you walked into Cheddar's over here, and you were about to ask for a table, and you noticed they were sitting on the other side of the restaurant. What would you do? My hope is you would run. You can find somewhere else to eat. And yet how many of us are sitting in the same room with the sin that wants to destroy us and take us to this place that Jesus talks about right here that is the place of hell, Gehenna, fire that is unquenchable and where worms do not die. That's where your sin and my sin wants to take us. No matter how tempting it might seem in the moment, no matter how fun it might seem in the moment, no matter how pleasurable it might seem in the moment, no matter how good it might seem in the moment to flip that person off or honk your horn or scream and cuss and yell or or to banish your kids to a room as you yell at them. In the end, your sin wants to see you destroyed. And Jesus said you should approach it with the exact same hostility that it has for you and get it out of your life. When we're humble enough to look in our own hearts and see our sin, we'll take our sin seriously. And the end result of a humble life is that we will find peace. Jesus ends these verses with a really kind of confusing notion of salt where he brings in a bunch of kind of pictures of salt that everyone is going to be salted with fire. There's a lot of different things coming to play in on this. One is the practice that the, especially the, the sacrifices of covenant, those covenantal offerings were always required in the Old Testament to be sprinkled with salt. Salt was a purification uh, instrument and tool in their day. And so Jesus is talking here about the judgment of fire as he's coming and he's talking about hell and he says, here, everyone is going to be purified in fire and as salt purifies. 
And it's either going to happen in eternal damnation of hell, or it's going to happen in your life as you take your sin seriously and you turn it over to Jesus Christ and you walk the path of discipleship, which is inevitably going to end up in suffering and rejection and betrayal and death. Everyone faces the purification process. And it's in that process that we become salty for Jesus. And that saltiness is is living out the character of humility of Jesus Christ in the world around us. And it is as we humble ourselves and turn away from the path of pride that leads us into, as we said, partiality and exclusivity, that leads us into spiritual blindness, that leads us into to devalue what God values and leads us to conflict and disunity. It's there that we learn to put other people first, to serve, to see ourselves as the worst person in the room, the one who needs the most grace. And the fruit of that is peace between our brothers and sisters in Christ. Peace with us in the world. And so, as we have salt in ourselves, in other words, as we live out the character of Jesus Christ, which is humility, we are then able to fulfill the command, the only command that Jesus gives in this passage of Scripture, be at peace with one another. And so he comes full circle to the conflict of the disciples at the beginning of our time together. Lay down your pride. All of your bickering, all of your fighting, all of that is an evidence of your pride and your self-promotion in your life. Turn away from it. Embrace humility. Embrace the path of Jesus Christ and be at peace with one another. That's the way of Jesus. The one who deserved everything. Everything that is good and everything that is glorious. And yet, he counted himself as nothing. Pursuing the cross so that you and I might be received by God as everything. Be deemed infinitely valuable. That's the way of Jesus. My question to you today is, are you walking that? Are you walking a life, the path of humility? Are you walking the path of pride? If so, then I would, if you're walking the path of pride, I would invite you this morning to lay it down. Cry out to the Lord. Ask His forgiveness. Ask Him to open your eyes, blinded by your own sin, that you might turn away from your pride, and you might embrace a life of humility, and that you might walk in the footsteps of Jesus in this world. Would you take a moment? Would you go before the Lord? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And would you pray? Would you pray now that the Holy Spirit would convict you, and would lead you in the way that you can best respond. How can you turn away from your sin of pride and embrace the path of humility this morning?